Desperate times require desperate measures, as the well-known saying goes. When we face desperate times, as we all do, difficulties, disappointments, great loss, significant challenges, we face the question, what are we willing to do? What measures are we willing to take? Are there any limits to what we might be willing to do because of these desperate times? Or is it truly do whatever it takes? And when we're in times of desperation, does God, his word, his ways, play any role in determining what we might be willing to do when we're truly desperate? That's some of what we'll consider this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Today we're in 1 Samuel 4. You can find that on page 228 in the Bibles we provided near you, page 228. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you as we work our way through. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, so we'll be in chapter 4. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and we'll mention those throughout our time together as we walk our way through this chapter. If you don't own a copy of the Bible yourself, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, there's a sign that says free Bibles. You just grab one of those Bibles from that stack and take it with you following the service today. So today we continue our series in 1 Samuel that we're calling In Search of a King, 1 Samuel 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage. Be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. 
When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel. for The ark of God has been captured. This morning as we look at this chapter, we'll see this emphasis. Reject pride and trust our promise-keeping God even when we're desperate. Reject pride. Trust our promise-keeping God even when we're desperate. And we'll look at our passage in three scenes. So the first thing we'll see, the battle is lost. The second, we'll see the ark is lost. And third, we'll see the glory is lost. So the battle is lost, the ark is lost, and the glory is lost. So first we see the battle is lost in verses 1 through 4. Last week we saw the boy Samuel who was living at the tabernacle, uh, this tent that God had ordained would be the place of worship for his people. He was living there with the priest Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were also priests. And we'd seen in previous weeks just how corrupt Eli's sons were. How they misused the offerings intended for God for themselves. How they sinned sexually against women who came to serve there. And how Eli had failed to even correct his sons for their corruption and sin. As a contrast, we saw throughout Samuel, this young boy who was serving faithfully who's growing in maturity and in godliness. Last week we saw in chapter 3 how the Lord had called Samuel, bringing him into the role of prophet. This role that is a special messenger from God to his people. So when God spoke to his people, he did through, through a prophet like Samuel. So God had given a message to Samuel for Eli, announcing God's judgment on Eli for Eli's failure and for that of his son's. We saw that Samuel then began to grow in influence across Israel. As all the people now saw Samuel as truly a prophet of God. His his word, which was the word of God, had authority and influence. And we see in our text today in verse 1, the word of Samuel, which was the very word of God, came to all Israel. But then the scene changes. And we're here where there's a battle about to happen between the Philistines and the Israelites. The Philistines were a neighboring nation that will play a significant role going forward in this book. They had settled on the coastal plain uh, to the area west of Israel. And we see in verse 2 that they fought and Israel suffered a significant defeat. Thousands of their men were killed. 
So after the defeat, the the people gather back at the camp and and we see the question they ask, in particular the elders, the leaders of Israel ask, look at verse three, here's their question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It's an interesting question because it's not the question we would expect. I think we'd expect the question to be, why did the Philistines defeat us today? But that's not what they ask. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So apparently they have a sense that something more is going on here than simply a battle between two nations. They have a sense that in some way God is working against them. How could they have explored this question more? What what might they have done to, to see why the Lord might have caused them to be defeated? They could have given themselves to some self-reflection. Considering, is is it possible that we as a a nation, that that we're engaged in some form of ongoing sin? Or or is it possible that some of our leaders are engaged in ongoing sin, but they don't seem interested in that? Or they could have asked the prophet of the Lord, Samuel. Samuel, who's growing in influence, through whom God is speaking. They could have called Samuel and said, Samuel, why has this happened to us? But they didn't. They didn't even ask Samuel. Samuel is notably missing from these chapters. It seems they weren't interested because times were desperate. They had a battle. They needed to fight and they needed to win. They seemed completely uninterested in exploring perhaps their own sin and why God might be doing this and how God might be trying to turn them back to him. But it's worth considering how often are we willing to consider our own sin when we face difficulties and disappointments in life. Now we need to be very careful as we think about this because misapplied we can hurt ourselves and others. Because so often in our life in this fallen world we we face difficulties and disappointments, pain and suffering that are not at all caused by our own sin often caused by the sin of others against us, and often simply realities of life in a sin-marred world. But even as we seek to be wise and careful, we should consider, though, is there ongoing, known, unrepentant sin in my life? Sometimes in His grace, God protects us even from ramifications of our sin. He's so kind. But at other times, as a loving, gracious, heavenly father, he will allow those consequences because out of his love, he desires to discipline us, to correct us, to turn us back to him. So sometimes difficulties, disappointments, are actually something God desires to use ultimately for our spiritual good. I want to be clear, that's not true of every hardship, of every suffering we face. In fact, likely not true of most. But it is sometimes true. And friend, if you're quickly concerned for your own heart, if you're quickly wondering, is that what's going on in your life? That's likely a sign that's not happening in your life. But if you're sure that would never happen in your life, that should be a warning sign that we are more like the Israelites than we might care to admit. And for this is one of the many reasons we need a local church with Christian believers who are with us, who know us well, so that if we come to a circumstance in life and we're beginning to think, I wonder, is this 
a discipline from God, this disappointment, this discouragement in life, that you can sit with someone who knows you well and you can share the circumstances and they can speak in your life and, and can be discerning enough to say, yeah, as best I can discern, I don't think this is from God as far as a, an act of discipline for you at all. I think it's a part of life in this broken, sin-marred world. So I don't think we're, we're supposed to connect those two. But sometimes, as a loving friend, they might say, I think this actually might be some of the consequences of your sin. And out of grace, God is allowing this. Because he wants to turn you back to him. So friend, have a local church who will help you at times like this. So what was the Israelites' plan? It was simple. Bring the Ark of the Covenant. Bring the Ark of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was a sacred gold-covered box or chest that God had told his people to build. It was uh, three and three-quarter feet long, two and a quarter feet wide and high that held in it the, the covenants of, or the, the tablets of the covenant. It held a jar of manna and it held Aaron's staff. And it was here that God promised to uniquely uh, bring his presence in the midst of his people. So God had given the, the tabernacle, and inside of that, in Syria called the holiest place, the, the, the ark would be kept. And there, God would dwell with his people. The ark is described, verse, chapter 4, verse 3, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord of armies of angels, who's enthroned on the cherubim. So what are they trying to do? Why bring the ark? Is the ark some, you know, special, advanced, secret weapon? No. But they understand that God had given the ark as a means by which he would uniquely dwell with his people. So it seems they're thinking that by bringing the ark into the battle, they would somehow force God to fight on their behalf. Somehow force God's hand to work for their behalf in the midst of the battle. But nowhere had God ever instructed his people to use his ark in that way. Now, in the past, in the history of God's people, as they were coming into the promised land in Canaan, there was a time they were crossing the Jordan, and the Lord instructed them specifically, take the ark into the Jordan River, and when they stepped in, the water stopped flowing, and the people crossed over. And there was a time as they were coming in to, to overthrow and to conquer Jericho. They were to march around Jericho, the ark leading the way. And as they shouted, the walls fell down and they conquered Jericho. Both of those found in the book of Joshua. But God had specifically instructed them, do this with the ark. But other than that, God had specifically told them, the ark belongs in the tabernacle. In fact, the average Israelite was to have no interaction with the ark, only the priest as it was in the holy place. But as we've said, the people were desperate. And they think they know better. They think they can force God to save them. So, so the thinking must have gone something like this. Well, if we take the ark in, God would not want to be seen as, as having lost a battle. So he will win the battle for the sake of his own name. God would not want to be saw, seen as, as someone who is unable to deliver his people. He'll look weak if his side loses, so God must intervene. Their desperate times called for these desperate measures. So they refused God's way. They didn't seek God's word from the prophet. They wanted God's power, but on their own 
terms. So they sent for the ark. And who accompanied the ark? We see verse 4. The two priests, Hophni and Phinehas. And if you've been with us the first three chapters, we immediately know these are these corrupt, thoroughly sinful priests. The priests who should have said, when the people started to come and get the ark, the priests should have been the ones who said, you can't take it. It's not intended for that. God told us not to take the ark. We're supposed to keep it here. But instead we see them going along with the ark as it's taken forward into battle. We all face desperate times. Every one of us do and every one of us will. I wonder, when you face desperate times, where do you turn? Do you ever find yourself tempted to try to manipulate God or somehow force him to do what you want him to do? Or do you find, sometimes find yourself desperate and so you simply choose to disregard God's word and his ways? Maybe saying, I, I've tried God's way. That didn't work. Now I'll choose my own way. Other ways that functionally you try to treat God something like a lucky charm. Instead of as a personal saving king, a gracious, loving father. There's so many different ways we might do this, but it might go something like this. We might say, I've had that cross necklace. I'm going to, I'm desperate. I'm going to wear that cross necklace from now on until God comes through. Or I will pray this prayer repeatedly or X number of times until God comes through for me. Or I'll start to go to church again. I'll start to go to church for the first time, but I'll keep going until God comes through for me. We see the battle is lost. But then second, we see the ark is lost in verses 5 through 11. The ark is lost. We see in verse 5 that when the ark first arrives, there's great hope and a great shout among Israel. They're encouraged and emboldened by its presence. And when the Philistines heard this shouting, they wonder what's going on. They, they finally discover, look at verse 7, they said, A God has come into the camp. Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Well, the Philistines don't have all the specific facts, but they know a bit. They've heard across the years of how God had delivered his people from Egypt. So they're worrying, it's, it's that God who's now against us. So it seems as if the momentum has shifted here. Yes, the Philistines had previously won, but now Israel is emboldened. The Philistines are afraid. Surely this battle will be won by Israel. But we see in verse 10 that they fought and Israel was defeated. Every man fled back to his home. Thousands were killed. And we see in verse 11, the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. But I don't think we can even imagine what a truly momentous day this was in Israel. For the ark of God to be taken away to another country. 
They adopt that they can somehow force God's hand or manipulate him for their purposes. But the God of the universe cannot be controlled. God was not concerned that people might think he wasn't able to save because his people lost this battle. He was more committed to working out his ultimate plan. He wasn't afraid of suffering what would seem to be shame and what seemed to be a loss by Israel. He wouldn't be manipulated by them. Friends, he won't be manipulated by us. Ultimately, that's good news that we can't manipulate our God. It's good news that you can't force your God to do something because we really do need a God who's wiser than us, greater than us, more powerful than us, one who we can't manipulate. From the outside, it could look like God was unfaithful to his people as they lose this battle. Had God forsaken them? But in fact... God was doing so much more in this and so much more for his people through this. For God was being faithful to his own word, to his promises and to his ways in this defeat. Earlier in the book, this woman by the name of Hannah, who had been unable to have children, God had eventually provided in response to her prayer a child named Samuel. And after Samuel was born, Hannah prayed a prayer at the beginning of chapter 2, this beautiful, theologically rich, profound prayer. And a theme across that prayer was something that's, in fact, a theme across 1 Samuel, is that as the Lord brings down the proud, and that he lifts up the lowly and the humble. And in this circumstance, that's what the Lord was doing. Hannah had said, chapter 2, verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So we see God doing exactly that in these circumstances. Now, now who was being lifted up in 1 Samuel so far? Who was being raised up from being lowly? Well, we've seen that in Hannah and also in Samuel. Now, who are the proud that have been brought low? Who is God bringing down? Was the leaders Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas? And God's people more broadly. Because as a nation, we've said that they were doing what was right in their own eyes. They, they as a whole were disregarding God and his word and his ways. They, they chose to neglect God's word through the prophet Samuel. And in their pride now, they together are seeking to manipulate God. And should remind us that the way of pride is always dangerous and destructive. So we want to embrace the path of humility that Jesus, our King, showed us and empowers us for. So God was faithful to what he had said through Hannah. God was also faithful to his word regarding judgment on Eli and his sons. In chapter 2, an unnamed prophet had come to Eli and it pronounced this in chapter 2, verse 34. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. That's exactly what happened. This will be a judgment. Your two sons will die. But not only will they die, they will die on the same day. 
Samuel had been given the word of the Lord for Eli, last week, chapter 3, verse 13. And I declare to him, to Eli, that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. This judgment comes on Eli and his sons who were priests of the Lord. They knew better. These were not innocent men. They knew God's word and yet they disregarded it. And not only they disregarded, they abused God's word and his people. As people were coming to worship and they were misusing their offerings for their own gain. They were sinning sexually against the women at the tabernacle. And they refused to repent of their sin. And so the Lord brought judgment on them just as he had said. He had promised it. He was faithful to it. Now, this act of judgment on Hophni and Phinehas was at the same time an act of grace for God's people. For God's people had had to interact with Hophni and Phinehas. God's people had been taken advantage of, abused, bullied, sexually sinned against by Hophni and Phinehas. So God was removing these corrupt and destructive priests who were supposed to shepherd God's people to open the way for potentially some faithful shepherds. Friends, God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his word. All that God has said he will do, friends, he will do it. He can be trusted. His word is sure and worthy of our trust. So we face the question, will we trust the Lord? Will we trust that his way is best? Especially when we're desperate. Will we trust the Lord then? So we see the ark is lost. But not only that third, we see the glory is lost. The glory is lost in verses 12 to 22. We see a man, a messenger, runs from the battle back to Shiloh to spread the news of what has happened. His clothes are torn. There's dirt on his head. When he comes into the city, he announces what has happened. All the city unsurprisingly cries out. Stunning, devastating news. We're given a vivid description of Eli. He's sitting on a seat watching as he was very old. He's not even able to visibly see. We're told in verse 13, his heart trembled for the ark of God. So Eli hears this uproar, the outcry of others. So he, so he asks what's causing the stir. So the messenger comes to Eli and he shares the news. Verse 17, there's been a great defeat His two sons were dead, and the ark of God was captured. As soon as the messenger mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat. His neck was broken, and he died. Eli, who had, we're told, judged Israel for 40 years, was his key leadership role, was now being judged himself. So Eli had been on edge waiting on this news. But notice the darkest, most devastating of the news was that the ark had been captured. He knew how significant this was. And we're told with really significant specificity how Eli died. He fell out of his chair. He broke his neck. And look at verse 18. For the man was old and heavy. And this is not somehow mocking those who are overweight in general but it's specifically getting at something about 
Eli. For how had Eli become so heavy? We saw back in chapter 2, verse 29, that Eli and his sons had fattened themselves, we're told, by inappropriately taking the choicest parts of the sacrifices for themselves. The sacrifices came, we want the best part, only the choicest part, a larger part. So Eli and his sons intentionally chose this. Eli knew better as the priest, but he had treated the God of glory lightly and instead was more interested in his own comfort, in his own enjoyment, in his own food, in his own weight. The word translated heavy comes from the same word for glory. So we say the Lord is truly glorious. When we say that, we mean he's, he's weighty. God is weighty. He's substantial. But Eli had pursued his own glory instead of God's glory. Eli had stolen God's glory. And his stolen glory, his stolen weight, was his ultimate downfall as he dies. The scene, the scene then moves from the street out in public to a private place in verse 19. Eli's daughter-in-law was the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth when she receives the news. She hears the news and she goes into early labor. And again, the news that was most significant to her was that the ark had been captured. We've seen again and again, Phineas was a corrupt, ungodly man. But his wife, on the other hand, seems to be a truly godly woman. She understood how devastating it was for God's people to lose the ark. Those around her tried to comfort her, but she didn't respond. She was stunned, overwhelmed, and brokenhearted. So she then names the son Ichabod. Because she said, the glory has departed from Israel. For the ark of God has been captured and the words she spoke in naming her son were so very true. So here we have the second godly woman being used by God to declare his truth in this book. First we saw Hannah, and now we see this woman. The name Ichabod means the glory has departed, or where is the glory? And then she's saying that what has happened in the capture of the ark, the glory of the Lord was no longer with his people as it once had been. God himself was no longer with his people as he once had uniquely been. There's a sense of, we could translate it, it says, the glory has gone into exile. As if to say the glory, the God of Israel has gone into exile. And we'll think about that more next week. So this was the darkest of days for Israel. A historically dark day. The glory of the Lord no longer with them. Friends, there is good news for us. And that is because in his grace, the glory of the Lord has come uniquely near to us. For when Jesus Christ comes into the world, the Gospel of John puts it this way, John chapter 1, verse 14. And when the word, referring to Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, came near and dwelt. The idea is that he tabernacled. 
So he once tabernacled with his people at Shiloh. Now he tabernacles in their midst as Jesus Christ comes and dwells. No longer in this one tent, but now in the midst of his people. And he, the one who has come, is the glorious son of God. Glory personified in Jesus in the flesh. And one of the names given for Jesus that we see in the Gospel of Matthew is this. Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's one of the beautiful descriptions of Jesus. God with us. That's the good news that Christ has come here. God is with us. So what a contrast. Ichabod, the glory has departed. Emmanuel, God has come near to us in Jesus Christ. Friends, that, if you're a Christian, is our Savior and King. He, the perfect and final high priest, unlike the corrupt priests Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. He, the perfect priest who was also the sinless Lamb of God, went to the cross in the place of sinners like us. And there the judgment of God that you and I deserve was poured out on Jesus. He endured the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. And friends, it looked like on the cross this was the ultimate loss for God. How could the Son of God die on a cross? Why didn't God save him? But in fact, it was no loss at all. It was the ultimate triumph, victory, and it was the ultimate glory of Jesus. And what looked like a shameful death instead was the very glory of our Savior and Lord. That's the pinnacle of his coming, his cross. For if you're a Christian, that is our Savior and King, and that is good news that he has come for us. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're spending part of your Sunday with us. And we so want you to know this Savior. That Christians, we don't worship some distant, impersonal God. We also don't serve a God that we can manipulate or that we can force his hand. But a sovereign, powerful God who out of great love came near to rescue sinners like us and provide this salvation as a gift of grace received by faith by anyone who'd admit their need of it. And friends, for we who are Christians, this is our Savior and King, and what a glorious Savior He is. That He has come near, the glorious one. That He is with us today. And we will one day know Him fully in the new heavens and the new earth. So friends, let's trust Him and keep trusting Him, especially when times are desperate especially when we're tempted to to grab hold of desperate measures that are outside of God's word and his ways. Let's refuse to try to manipulate him. Let's refuse to try to force his hand. Let's lean on him in full dependence. Let's lean on him by faith today. He's faithful to his word. Always faithful to all of his word. For he will be faithful to you.